Chapter 18 A History of California, the American Period by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 Statehood. While the immigration spoken of in the previous chapter was in progress, California was face to face with the serious problem of establishing a government adequate to meet the new conditions. The American conquest, in fact, had ushered in an era of political transition. During the first three years of American possession, from 1846 to 1849, the newly acquired territory enjoyed almost as many rulers as in the old days of Mexican control, when frequently the province was blessed with two governors at a time and once with triplets. Sloat, who assumed command of California in his proclamation of July 7, 1846, gave place to Stockton before the month was out. Stockton, despite the claims of General Kearney, remained in control until shortly after the middle of January, 1847. He then passed over the governorship to Fremont, who in turn was superseded by Kearney early in March. Within sixty days, Kearney was succeeded by Mason, and Mason resigned in favor of Riley on April 12, 1849. During much of this period, particularly after the ratification of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the political status of the newly acquired territory was in a state of curious uncertainty. The government during this year has been described as, quote, part military and part civil and part no government at all. The laws were mostly variant and variously conceived, the civil law, the Pike County Code, the New York Code, the common law, maritime law, the law of the plains, military law, and the miners' law were all jumbled up together, and the courts were as unique as the government and the laws. They were Americo-Mexican, military-civil, and with a good degree of the vigilante. Presumably, under international law, the laws and institutions of Mexico already existing in California should have remained in effect until definitely superseded by congressional legislation. As a matter of fact, however, the Mexican form of government was so ill-suited to American tastes and the needs of the country that this theory, except in occasional instances, was wholly abandoned, and then the successive governors found themselves compelled to work out a more practical program of their own. The most striking instance of the few attempts to maintain institutions of Mexican origin was in the case of the Alcalde appointments made by Commodore Stockton. One of the Americans who sat in this seat of old-time Spanish authority was the Reverend Walter Colton, chosen by Stockton to serve as alcalde at Monterey. For three years, Colton filled this office, the duties of which he thus described, quote, By the laws and usages of the country, the judicial functions of the alcalde of Monterey extend to all cases, civil and criminal, arising within the middle department of California. He is also the guardian of the public peace, and is charged with the maintenance of law and order whenever and wherever threatened or violated. He must arrest, fine, imprison, or sentence to the public works the lawless and refractory, and he must enforce through his executive powers the decisions and sentences which he has pronounced in his judicial capacity. His prerogatives and official duties extend over all the multiplied interests and concerns of his department, and reach to every grievance and crime from the jar that trembles around the domestic hearth 
to the guilt which throws its gloom of the gallows in the grave. Colton's apt description shows plainly enough why the American population of California, trained as it was to cherish the jury system and the constitutional limitation of authority, vigorously criticized the arbitrary powers lodged in the hands of the alcaldes and did not willingly accept any other institutions of Spanish origin. As a result of this attitude, except in those communities like Monterey, where the newcomers formed a comparatively small element of the population, the Mexican laws were never applied, or, having been put into effect, were speedily rendered ineffectual by the strong opposition that developed against them. So it came about that in most of the distinctively American settlements, such as Sacramento or the mining communities, whatever government existed was almost wholly of local origin. In San Francisco, where the government for a time was lodged in the hands of an alcalde and ayuntamiento, or town council, the settlers finally took matters into their own hands, following a period in which two rival councils each claimed to be legally elected, and established a body new both to American and Spanish law known as the Legislative Assembly. This assembly, consisting of fifteen members chosen by popular vote, sought to abolish the former ayuntamiento and alcalde, and with three justices of the peace, exercise all the functions of a city government. The members of the two rival councils resigned, but the alcalde, Thaddeus M. Leavenworth, refused to recognize the authority of the assembly and appealed to General Persifor F. Smith, military commander, and Governor Riley, who held his office under federal appointment, for support. Both Smith and Riley pronounced the assembly an illegal body and advised Leavenworth to maintain his office. The result was a temporary deadlock in San Francisco politics that brought to a head one of the most perplexing questions both from a legal and practical standpoint that the United States government has ever faced in its dealings with new territory. In the technical sense of the term, California was plainly neither a state nor a territory, and yet, after the ratification of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, it was scarcely possible, in any constitutional sense, for the federal authorities to hold her people under military rule. But this latter form of government, however unconstitutional it might be, was the only alternative to anarchy, and with good Anglo-Saxon common sense, the president prolonged it until the people of California themselves made its continuance no longer necessary. Naturally, there was opposition to a form of government which owed its existence to circumstances rather than to law, and many of the California immigrants by 1849 were advocating a kind of squatter sovereignty under which the settlers themselves should set up a government to supersede the authority exercised by the federal officials. Locally, as in San Francisco, this popular assumption of authority developed into a conflict with the government already in existence. As the months went by and Congress, deadlocked by the slavery issue, failed to set up a territorial form of government or meet the situation in any other way, California faced a dubious future. Military authority was fast outliving its usefulness, and there seemed no prospect of having it displaced by a regularly organized territorial government. To save themselves from anarchy in this emergency, the people were compelled to act upon their own responsibility. As early as December 11, 1848, 
the citizens of San Jose came together to consider the propriety of establishing a provisional territorial government for the protection of life and property. San Francisco, Sacramento, and Sonoma from time to time held similar meetings, and by the spring of 1849, only the expectation that the National Congress then in session would fulfill the promises of the federal government and establish a territorial organization restrained the people from framing a government of their own. When this hope failed with the adjournment of Congress in March, California, so long sans law, sans order, sans government, definitely set about organizing her own government and making an end of a situation that had always been anomalous and was now fast becoming desperate because of the turbulent, restless hordes the gold migration was daily bringing within her borders. With unexpected and not entirely welcome suddenness, the leadership in this new movement was taken by Governor Riley, who issued a proclamation for the election of delegates to a general constitutional convention. At the same time, the governor condemned the settlers' organization in San Francisco as an illegal body. This resulted in an immediate conflict between Riley and the leaders of the squatter sovereignty program. And for a time, it looked as though the whole movement would end in failure. Fortunately, however, the settlers were more interested in securing order and settled government than in maintaining a technical right. And when common sense had gotten the better of local pride, they prepared to carry out the plan proposed by Riley. The election of delegates to the convention was set for August 1st, and on the same day the people were instructed to choose the local officials known to Mexican law to serve until the state government should formally be established. The territory was divided into 10 districts, from which a total of 37 delegates were to be returned. Of these 37, Monterey, San Jose, and San Francisco were each to send five delegates, Sacramento, Sonova, San Joaquin, and Los Angeles, four each, and San Diego, Santa Barbara, and San Luis Obispo, two each. When the convention finally met, however, it was found that the number of delegates specified in the governor's proclamation had been disregarded by many of the districts, and a total of 48 representatives had been returned instead of 37. As most of these additional delegates came from northern districts, the final apportionment in the convention gave the North 38 members and the South only 10. As a whole, the convention was typical of the people who made up California in the 50s. Its membership included eight native Californians, among whom the most conspicuous were Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo of Sonoma, Jose Antonio Carrillo of Los Angeles, and Santa Barbara's sole delegate, Pablo de la Guerra. All of these were excellent representatives of the Mexican regime. Thomas O. Larkin and Don Abel Stearns of Los Angeles belonged to the older foreign residents who had come to the coast long before the conquest and had acquired something of a common interest and a common outlook with the Californians. Most of the delegates, however, were typical of the new day and the new order ushered in by American occupation. They were nearly all young men of serious purpose not exceptionally well-versed in political affairs, but practical enough to frame a constitution suited to the needs of the time, and little influenced by peculiar hobbies or personal political ambitions. From the standpoint of occupations, lawyers, ranchers, and merchants predominated, but nearly every other profession or business was also represented. 
for in its composition the convention was a true cross-section of the entire population in accordance with the date set by riley's proclamation a few of the delegates met at monterey on september first but it was not until the following tuesday the fourth that the convention was formally organized dr robert semple of tall stature and bear flag fame was elected president and captain william g marcy of the stevenson regiment was chosen secretary the meetings of the convention were held in a schoolhouse newly erected by the american alcalde through the labors of convicts the taxes on rum and the banks of the gamblers in honor of its builder it was known as colton hall the convention met in the upper story which consisted of a single room some sixty feet long by twenty-five feet wide the following paragraph from a contemporary description gives a picture of the convention and its meeting place Quote, a railing running across the middle of the hall divided the members from the spectators the former were seated at four long tables the president occupying a rostrum at the further end over which were suspended two american flags and an extraordinary picture of washington evidently the work of a native artist the appearance of the whole body was exceedingly dignified and intellectual and parliamentary decorum was strictly observed unquote. the most skillful member of the convention in the art of political manipulation and in many respects the most capable statesman as well was william m gwynn of tennessee whose future for ten years was to be inseparably connected with the history of the state he was then helping to create through gwynn's foresight copies of the recently drafted iowa constitution were printed for the use of the convention and the document thus became a sort of working model for the guidance of the delegates other state constitutions were also made use of notably that of new york but for some of the peculiar needs of the new commonwealth there was no pattern to meet these the delegates were forced back upon their own ingenuity and common sense it is scarcely necessary here to attempt a further description of the constitution of eighteen forty nine drafted under peculiar conditions by men little used to politics and designed to meet an emergency the document was naturally defective in many particulars and nearly thirty years later had to be abandoned for a new instrument nevertheless it met the needs of the time with a fair measure of satisfaction and was not an unworthy product of the earnest and conscientious if not brilliant men who framed it on most matters the convention worked without friction but an occasional hotly debated issue broke the otherwise harmonious sessions one of these disturbing questions was that of the eastern limits of the state to the west the pacific ocean settled the boundary beyond dispute the northern boundary had been definitely fixed along the forty-second parallel by the treaty of eighteen nineteen with spain similarly the treaty of guadalupe hidalgo had determined the international line to the south but on the east there was an empire of uncertain extent vaguely known to the spaniards as part of their province of alta california whether the territory to be included in the new state should follow these old boundaries to the rocky mountains or stop at the sierra nevada was the vital question before the convention two parties soon formed over this issue the one led by gwynne halleck sherwood and a few others might properly be called the large state party from their advocacy of the rocky mountains as the eastern limit 
the second group sought just as vigorously to confine the state between the pacific and the sierra after prolonged debate by a vote of thirty-two to seven a compromise line was chosen fixing the boundary as we have it now the motives behind this division of the convention into large and small state parties were not particularly complex those who advocated the wider boundary believed that it more nearly approximated the historical limits of california under spanish rule a view entirely correct and that the larger state could eventually bear the expenses of a government more easily than one of smaller size there was also an immediate need for courts in the enforcement of law in the region beyond the sierra through which the immigrants were coming into california finally the members of this party believed that congress would more readily admit the state if the convention set its eastern boundary at the rockies instead of at the sierra nevada the small state advocates curiously enough argued from the same premises to a directly opposite conclusion it would be impossible they said for a state located on the pacific to administer a government for the vast semi-desert region across the sierra nor did they believe that the people of california had any right to extend their boundaries so far as to include the mormon inhabitants of utah who were already seeking to establish their own state of deseret furthermore it would be utterly preposterous for the convention to expect congress to admit california to the union with the larger boundaries proposed and the attempt to secure congressional sanction for the constitution under such circumstances would only result in a complete rejection of the plea for statehood it should be remarked also that the older historical writers commonly ascribed to the party advocating the larger boundaries a sort of machiavellian shrewdness by which through subsequent division of the enormous state they hoped to provide for the extension of slavery to the coast this tradition which never had much foundation in fact of late years has been so thoroughly disproven as to require little comment here the truth is the people who emigrated to california from the eastern states whatever may have been their views in the older communities from which they came realized clearly enough that slavery had no place in the new environment and never supported it in any way as a local institution the unanimous vote of the constitutional convention in favor of a clause which read quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude unless for the punishment for crimes shall ever be tolerated in this state unquote, ought to be clear enough evidence of the attitude in california toward this question and one feels free to dismiss the whole subject without further consideration amid the firing of salutes and an impromptu celebration the members of the convention completed their work and signed the constitution on saturday afternoon october thirteenth eighteen forty nine bayard taylor who was present at the scene paid tribute to the framers of the document in the following words quote, the questions they had to settle were often perplexing from the remarkable position of the country and the absence of all precedent besides many of them were men unused to legislation some had for years past known no other life than that of the camp others had nearly forgotten all the law and the wild life of the mountains others again were familiar only with that practiced under the rule of a different race yet the courtesies of debate have never been wantonly violated and the result of every conflict of opinion has been a quiet acquiescence on the part of the minority 
Now at the conclusion, the only feeling is that of general joy and congratulation. End quote. November 13th, a Tuesday, was fixed as a date for submitting the Constitution to the people for ratification. At the same election, state officials, including a governor and member of the legislature, were to be chosen, and also the two federal congressmen to which the state, according to its population, was entitled. The first legislature, provided the Constitution carried, was to meet at San Jose, the capital, on December 15, 1849. Rain, apathy, difficulty in reaching the polling centers, and various other causes reduced the vote on Election Day to an unsatisfactory minimum. From a population of approximately 100,000, most of whom were men of voting age, only 12,875 ballots were returned. The lightness of the vote, however, was much more than counterbalanced by the percentage in favor of the Constitution. Only 811 votes were cast against it, while the total affirmative vote was 12,064. From among a number of candidates, Peter H. Burnett, a former Oregon pioneer, was chosen governor, and Gilbert and Wright were elected to Congress. From all accounts, the election was conducted with reasonable honesty, but circumstances and public sentiment alike threw embarrassing legal regulations to the wind. Some of the candidates spent both money and energy in their campaigns, and in addition, Governor Riley, Halleck, and President Tyler's personal representative, Thomas Butler King, waged a very vigorous fight to ensure the ratification of the Constitution. In the mining sections, which then contained the bulk of the state's population, the event was regarded with that semi-humorous attitude typical of the Western pioneer toward most political questions. Quote, the choosing of candidates from lists, nearly all of whom were entirely unknown, was very amusing, wrote Bayard Taylor. Names, in many instances, were made to stand for principles. Accordingly, a Mr. Fair got many votes. One of the candidates, who had been on the river a few days previous, wearing a high-crowned silk hat with a narrow brim, lost about twenty votes on that account. Some went no farther than to vote for those who they actually knew. One who took the opposite extreme justified himself in this wise. When I left home, said he, I was determined to go it blind. I went it blind in coming to California, and I'm not going to stop now. I voted for the Constitution, and I've never seen the Constitution. I voted for all the candidates, and I don't know a damned one of them. End quote. The ratification of the Constitution and the election of state officials by no means solved California's problem of statehood. The great difficulty was to secure the sanction of Congress for an act which no congressional statute had authorized and for which no precedent could anywhere be found. The chief obstacle, however, in the way of California's admission to the Union, was slavery, the same barrier that had prevented Congress from establishing a territorial form of government for the province, and which now, for a number of weary and dangerous months, threatened the state with a chaos bordering upon revolution. It was once pretty generally believed that the annexation of California was due to the sinister influence of the South, which, forever reaching out for more slave territory, finally brought about the Mexican War in order to obtain California as a slave state. 
This view, which neither facts nor logic ever justified, has been elsewhere effectually disproved. But while slavery did not figure as a motive for the acquisition of California, it undeniably did figure in the heated conflict over the disposition of the territory once it had come into the possession of the United States. Little thought seems to have been given to the establishment of slavery in California, even by the most radical Southern members of Congress, until David Wilmot of Pennsylvania introduced his famous amendment to the Appropriation Bill, which President Polk had requested from Congress to enable him to open confidential negotiations with Mexico. The Wilmot Proviso, first brought forward in August 1846, aimed at the exclusion of slavery from all territory which the United States might secure from Mexico as a result of the war. The Southern representatives were at first strangely apathetic regarding this amendment, a measure which assuredly would have caused an immediate storm of opposition had any Southerner at that time attached much importance to California as a slave-holding state, and the House voted favorably upon it. Its passage through the Senate also seemed assured until, in the closing minutes of a very crowded session, one of its own supporters, honest but loquacious John Davis of Massachusetts, talked it to an unexpected death. In the next session of Congress, the pro-slavery element were in a very different temper regarding the Mexican session. Without much hope that slavery would flourish on a large scale in New Mexico or California, because of the natural obstacles in its path, the South was almost a unit in demanding the right to share at least nominally in the fruits of the conquest. The practical question as to whether Negroes could be carried to California and profitably used there was wholly lost sight of in the determination to maintain the equality of slave states with free. The fight over California, in the acquisition of which the South was much less interested than New England in the West, thus became an intense, bitter struggle over a principle that involved far more than the status of the territory in question. By 1850, the question whether California should be free or nominally slave had brought the Union face to face with one of the few real crises in its history. Three parties were definitely in the field. Following the earlier lead of Polk, who believed that slavery in any part of California could never be more than an abstract question, a very large group of moderates wished to extend the line of the Missouri Compromise, 36 degrees, 30 minutes, to the Pacific. A radical southern element, however, was demanding the whole area for slavery and advancing the new doctrine that Congress had no authority to legislate against slavery in any of the national territory. Finally, a decidedly vigorous party in the North was insisting that the principle of the Wilmot Proviso should be adopted and that the whole of the ceded region must be kept free. For at least once in the course of history, the force of circumstance aided the cause of right. Following international law, since California had been free under Mexican rule, it was difficult to see how slavery could exist in the territory after its acquisition by the United States unless Congress specifically imposed it there. Such positive laws, the anti-slavery majority in the House, would not pass under any consideration. Furthermore, the action of the people of California in definitely excluding slavery by their constitution 
made it doubly certain that Congress would never force the system upon the state. The South, however, was too thoroughly antagonized to yield even before these odds. Threats of secession were freely made, and thus, strangely enough, the Union faced disruption as a consequence of the great territorial gains of the Mexican War. With the country as a whole hotly divided over the slave or free state issue, and the situation in California demanding a speedy settlement to prevent grave consequences among that impatient population, Congress came together again on December 1849. Among the members of that body, however, was a spirit of antagonism and discord that augured ill for the immediate admission of the state. During this session, President Taylor, whose special agent had done so much to encourage the adoption of the Constitution, repeatedly urged upon Congress the necessity of admitting California and denied the right of that body to interfere with the free choice of the people of the prospective state whether they favored or opposed slavery. His plan called for the settlement of the California question on its own merits, divorced from other troublous issues connected with slavery which were then agitating the country. But Taylor was not to succeed in his plan, intent not only upon solving the California problem, but also upon settling the other questions in which slavery was concerned. Henry Clay, the great compromiser, insisted upon an inclusive program that embraced nearly all of the critical issues then before the nation. Linked thus with some half a dozen other questions, the admission of California experienced a prolonged delay. The debate on Clay's compromise continued month after month. In the Senate, the great triumvirate of Webster, Clay, and Calhoun, the country's foremost statesmen for half a century, met in battle array for the last time. Calhoun died before the session closed. Webster marred a reputation and undeservedly lost political favor by his 7th of March speech. Clay, an old man worn out by sickness and anxiety, labored incessantly to effect the compromises through which alone he believed the Union could be preserved. Before the summer was well begun, President Taylor, who had consistently adhered to the admission of California, divorced from all other issues, was taken suddenly ill and died. Fillmore, his successor, favored the plan of finding a common solution for all of the slavery problems. But even with the support of the executive, the compromise measures proposed by Clay could not be passed. The admission of California, the chief stumbling block in Clay's plan, was opposed on the ground that the people there had no shadow of authority to frame a constitution, that the boundaries of the proposed state were too large and could be fixed only by congressional action, that the election at which the constitution was adopted was both irregular and unlawfully conducted, and finally that the president had brought improper influence to bear upon the drafting and adoption of the constitution. For some weeks longer the deadlock continued until at last the compromise measure, in which Clay alone saw hope of adjusting the nation's difficulties, began to fall apart. Depressed in spirit and almost ready for death, the old Kentuckian left Washington for the seacoast, where he hoped to regain a little measure of his fast-ebbing strength. In the meanwhile, the internal situation in California had become acute, for two years, the people had waited in vain for Congress to establish a territorial form of government. 
Another year had almost passed since the drafting of their constitution, and statehood seemed as far as ever from realization. It was during these months of debate and delay in Congress, while the problem of law and order and settled government was daily becoming more critical around them, that the people of the state talked openly of declaring their independence and of setting up a separate republic on the Pacific, thus bringing to pass the old idea of Langsford W. Hastings and of other empire dreamers in the days before the Mexican War. But the measures Clay failed to carry in combination were finally voted favorably upon when presented separately. One by one, the items of his compromise were embodied in separate bills and passed by Congress. The admission of California was finally carried in the Senate on August 13, 1850, by a vote of 38 to 14. On the 7th of the next month, it was ratified in the House by a vote of 150 to 56. Two days later, September 9, 1850, the bill was signed by Fillmore, and California had become a state. To California, this, of course, meant the dawn of a new and glorious era. And to the nation, also, it meant ultimately more than ever men dreamed of at that time. But with this lasting blessing came a temporary curse. For out of the admission of California grew that dark sequence of slavery and free soil issues, the Kansas-Nebraska Bill, the question of squatter sovereignty, and the Dred Scott decision, which led up to the election of 1860 and the Civil War. The local significance of California's admission was thus for a decade actually secondary to its national importance. End of chapter 18